Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. It is 7.30. Welcome, everybody. Both here in the room and at home, whatever room you are in. It's the regular Monday night meditation class against the stream meditation center. If you're here, if you're new, welcome to you. We've been meeting weekly for um, over 15 years here in Los Angeles. And before that, teaching i think i was teaching monday nights in new york city and uh, before that in san francisco and before that in santa cruz so this sangha that you a sangha is the buddhist word for community uh although the community is transient you know meaning people come and go and stay for a while and maybe come back later um been uh, meeting for about 20 years or so practicing together. So thanks for joining me and joining the community tonight. It's uh, nice that the room there looks like there's about um, 13 people in the room, maybe 14 or 15 people here present and uh, 42 people online. And, you know, one of the core, one of the reasons I started having meditation groups and then later meditation centers is because of the importance of community, the kind of Buddhist teachings of like, we need to get together and connect and, uh, you know, have conflict (laughs) and support each other and learn how to really practice. Uh, My sense is that all of the Buddha's teachings are relational, which is at first glance, it doesn't really seem so, right? Like you think, I'm going to learn how to meditate. I'm going to go, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to go inward and I'm going to shut off the world. Um, but all of the internal uh, practices that we do to train the mind and the hearts and to develop wisdom and compassion are in service of how we show up in the world, how we show up in relationships and uh, uh, And the Buddha taught over and over the importance of finding people to practice with that were, um, had the similar uh, intentions of you, that were on the kind of same page of wanting to be mindful and wanting to be kind and wanting to um, create a positive change on the planet with, from the inside out. So it's a little tricky during this year of uh, COVID and the isolation and the um, necessity for some people to stay at home and to avoid uh, gatherings. And so we're trying to, you know, some people are trying to re, re-emerge from that and we're trying to do it safely and spacing and wearing masks and all of that stuff. And if you're at home, uh, one of the reasons we moved to the Zoom format off of the, we were live streaming on YouTube and 
Facebook and Instagram and all of that. But at least on Zoom, if you want to, you can put on the grid and you can see I'm not alone or I'm not just listening to Noah. I'm actually sitting with, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. Um, so there's a virtual community that's being developed. And then I'm trying to now do both. Talk to the people at home and the people in the room and, and we're all in it together. Alone, together. <laughs> or we're all in it alone, together. Together, alone, I don't know. I want to talk about um, the current state of affairs with the impending election tomorrow. Maybe that's not on anybody's mind, but well, maybe it's on everybody's mind. I'm gonna, I have no idea what I'm gonna say, but I do have a title and for my talk tonight. And my talk is Fear and Loathing versus uh, acceptance and tolerance and compassion and forgiveness. And so we'll talk about that later. We'll meditate first. And uh, most of the time I offer a mindfulness-based meditation instruction, but I think that tonight we'll do well, what's called a heart practice, a kind of loving kindness. Uh, and I'll do my own, uh, what, uh, we'll call it Brahma Vihara practice. Brahma Vihara is the term for um, the awakened qualities of our mind and our heart that we experience when we train the heart and mind. We uncover loving kindness and we uncover compassion and we uncover appreciation and also equanimity. And I'll probably throw in some forgiveness and uh, I, I led this meditation one time and a friend of mine said, that's sort of like the kitchen sink meditation where you're just throwing it all, throw everything and the kitchen sink into the instructions. Um, so we'll do one of those practices tonight. And then we'll talk about fear. <clears throat> and the antidotes to fear. So find a way to sit upright, relaxed, comfortable at least to begin with.
settling in, adjusting, softening. Bringing awareness into the present time experience of motion, are you feeling right now? Is there joy or sorrow present? Is the mind craving or aversive? Are you feeling solid, confident, grounded? Or a bit stirred up or spun out, anxious, afraid? Just acknowledging how you're feeling. There's no right or wrong answers. Mindfulness by definition has no judgment. There's not one way that to feel that is better than another. Mindfulness just acknowledges that it's like this, my heart, my mind, this body. Allow yourself to reflect on, to bring into awareness your own deepest healthy desires. The desire for happiness. for ease, for well-being. Desire to feel loved, accepted, 
to be healthy, to feel safe. Often as we acknowledge our desire for happiness, for ease, for peace, it becomes so evident how we don't have all of those qualities. We're not able to live a life of ease and well-being yet why we are continuing to practice. So I invite you to begin offering yourself some forgiveness. Sending some forgiveness to your mind that judges and criticizes compares, experiences all of the fear and loathing, and some forgiveness to your mind. Saying silently, inwardly to your own mind, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. For all of the ways that you make my life so unpleasant. Living with this critical, self-centered brain. over and over, slowly repeating to your own mind, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment.
beginning to expand the loving kindness phrase. May I be at ease. Having sent some forgiveness to our own minds, shifting to acceptance. May I be at ease with my mind. With all of its wonderful capabilities, and painful habits. I learned to be at ease, living with my mind just as it is. kind of ease that we're looking for that the Buddha talked about is not just when we're free from fear, but being at ease in the midst of fear, accepting that restlessness and anxiousness and fear, just part of having a heart and mind body. I learn to be friendly towards and at ease with the fear that arises and passes through my consciousness, my experience.
when your mind drifts off into stories, into plans, memories, hopes, fears. Just acknowledge their thoughts. You're here sitting, meditating. Return to the phrasing, the simple intention, aspiration, may I learn to be at ease. You can add the statement, may I do what needs to be done to experience the happiness, the ease, the freedom that I seek. May I take the actions, the appropriate training of the heart, mind, renunciation of the causes of suffering. And I do what needs to be done. And then acknowledging, saying to yourself, I am doing what needs to be done. Right now, training the mind. turning towards the pain rather than away from it with forgiveness, with loving kindness. So we say to ourselves, may I be at ease I do what needs to be done to experience this ease. I am doing what needs to be done to experience this ease.
beginning to expand beyond ourselves, knowing how much influence we have over each other. Extending forgiveness and loving kindness. Starting in your own family, close to home. I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. And I wish for your ease. to your parents, to your children, partners, siblings, whether they are living or dead, your ancestors, your grandparents, great-grandparents, bringing as much compassion as you can to the suffering of your people. As much forgiveness as you can. And again, opening to the, may you be at ease with your own minds, hearts, with your own karma. May you do what needs to be done. May you do the training, the healing, the renunciation that leads to happiness. Our wish for ease not as a magical wish, but a Encouragement, a support. The understanding that we can't make anybody happy. Can't make anybody wise or anybody heal 
that we can extend love and forgiveness and compassion. Extending beyond our families out into the communities that you're part of, the sanghas, the fellowships. Colleagues. inclining our hearts towards seeing the pain of our friends. Meeting each other with compassion and forgiveness. And extending the wish for ease, may you learn to be at ease with your own mind, with your life. May you find the willingness to do what needs to be done. To experience the happiness that you seek. expanding further and further for a minute or two just opening to the United States the I think there's close to 350 million human beings or so in this country each one with their own joys and sorrows, their own levels of wisdom and ignorance, their own views and opinions, each one seeking happiness, wishing for ease, for well-being. Every single one sharing the same wish that we have for our own happiness.
each one experiencing pain, every person has their own pains, physical, emotional, mental. Allow yourself to see and to feel the pain of this country. and to extend compassion as much as you can to all of the suffering. All of the manifestations of ignorance and confusion. That cause harm to each other. Wishing for ease, wishing for happiness, opening to forgiveness, the possibility, letting go of loathing, letting go of hatred. Continue to expand so we don't become too nationalist over here to the whole planet. Those Canadians up north also suffering down into Mexico, Central America, South America, across the seas, all of the islands, throughout Africa, Asia, Europe. cover this whole planet, the almost 8 billion human beings, countless animals, fish, birds, all of the life forms on this planet, not just the humans. Extending loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness. And the encouragement, the equanimous encouragement that understands we can't change anybody else. But wishing may all beings find the willingness to do what needs to be done. to heal, to forgive. To 
renounce greed and hatred and delusion. To end suffering. May all beings be at ease in all realms of existence. so hard to really, really, really get that our happiness is not dependent on what's happening. Period. <laughs> End of Dharma talk. <laughs> It's so hard to get it. Like part of you knows it already, right? Part of you knows, like you've read some Buddhist books, <laughs> you've attended some lectures, you've been meditating, some of you for decades and you know it, you know, like the core is, it's possible to be happy and at ease and free, no matter how fucked up the world is that we live in. This is the Buddha's gift to us. He said, it's possible. He said, I did it. I said, I live in this really fucked up world of racism and sexism and violence and oppression. And I found a way to have compassion. And I found a way to have a heart of forgiveness and of loving kindness and of appreciation. I found a way to not suffer about what was happening and that it wasn't 
it wasn't because life was um, easy or there was justice or there was He's in this world of ignorance. There's that, um, the phrase against the stream comes in this place where the Buddha is reflecting on uh, after his awakening and he's reflecting on like, should I teach <laughs> to this world? And he's like, I don't know, like in this world where people are so greedy and so filled with hatred and so filled with self-centered delusion, is anybody going to really listen <laughs> to this teaching that says, you know, sit there and be uncomfortable <laughs> and learn to turn towards your pain rather than running from it and practice some renunciation, this whole happiness through material accumulation. It's a dead end, <laughs> you know, and you had some doubt some hesitance at least some hesitance and the part that sticks out to me is that he's talking about this ancient culture 2600 years ago um you know before all of the technology that we've developed that is i don't know if it has it made things worse or better i'm not sure better in some ways worse in others and he's talking about his culture and this is a culture where yeah there's Tons of racism and sexism and uh, greed and, you know, 1% of the culture has more than the other 99% of the culture, like pretty similar to what we're dealing with now, 2,600 years later. You know, back then, like the kings had everything and everybody else had nothing. And, you know, to become a king, you lied and stole and cheated and murdered and But also in that culture, there were all of these really radical spiritual renunciates that were dropping out of the accumulation, uh, you know, dead end. And that were seeking liberation and there's wandering meditators and living in the forests and traveling around going like, materialism is a fucking dead end and and this world is so filled with confusion maybe we can have a spiritual revolution maybe we can have a spiritual awakening and some very engaged in politics and the buddha himself after his awakening somewhat engaged in political action I mean, there was no voting <laughs> back then. Um, but he was not afraid to go and speak truth to power and to protest and to, like, he was in it. And, you know, there, most of you have heard me and are, are aware of, you know, he would go out into war zones and try to speak to the warlords about nonviolence and compassion and the karma of their actions and, you know, these uh, beautiful, simple teachings like hatred will never cease by meeting it with more hatred. You know, because one faction says, well, you know, they attacked us, so now we're going to, we hate them. And he says, yeah, and then, you know, you just 
keeps going. The hatred's never going to end when we keep meeting the ignorance with more ignorance. And and that simple uh, hatred never ceases by uh, more hatred. By love alone does hatred cease. The only way to end hatred is by forgiving, by meeting the past pains with compassion, with love, with forgiveness. And so much, you know, so much easier said than done, of course. This this whole dilemma of of being human and having this mind that just naturally gives you bad advice. And it's not just you, it's not just me, it's not just us weird meditators that have minds that judge and criticize and tell us to cling all day, every day, and tell us to hate people who are wrong in our opinion, in our view, and even if it's not our view and opinion, they're really actually wrong. <laughs> but, you know, we still, we live with this mind that's like, you should hate them. How many times did your mind tell you today that you should? And maybe hate is a strong uh, word or manifestation of just sort of judge, criticize, be aversive to, be annoyed by (laughs) rather than like does your mind how often does your mind say you should have compassion for the other side we should have compassion for and then when it does say that i was talking to a friend earlier this extra dilemma that we get as meditators and buddhist practitioners or then has your mind started yet? If it hasn't, it will. Started to use Buddhism against you? And then, then your mind, you're like you're angry about something, you're afraid of something, and then that your mind clicks in of like, hey, you're like supposed to be being mindful. Like, don't be such an asshole. You're not very Buddhist of you to be, you know, so annoyed, so, so angry, so afraid. Like, you should be able to meditate this shit away. What have you been doing on the cushion for all those hours? You do all those retreats for? Jerk. (laughs) Um. I wonder about fear. It seems like it's not going anywhere. (laughs) There are some teachings where people talk about being fearless. I'm probably guilty of it sometimes too, of like get to a place of such acceptance, such. But I think that there's just something about our human mind and this, just the survival instinct and Uh, maybe at full awakening, um, we won't be bothered by fear, but 
most of you, I know most of you are familiar with my spiel, which is my, my sense is that stuff like fear is never going away. That we're just wired. It's just part of our wiring. We're nervous animals. <laughs> it's our survival instinct. It's just, you're going to have to live with some levels of fear forever, is my sense. How much we, and you heard it in the meditation instruction, may I be at ease with the fear that is arising and passing through my consciousness. And so often we think, oh, I'll, I could be at ease if I wasn't so anxious. I could be at ease if I wasn't so afraid of what the fuck is gonna happen tomorrow night or Wednesday or whenever the riots are coming. But rather than postponing our happiness until fear is gone, what mindfulness is encouraging us, what the Dharma is trying to teach us is um, to be with the fear. Fear feels like this in my body. And all of the meditation practices that we do are preparing us. You know, if you haven't been meditating much and you're brand new, then, you know, you're brand new and you're doing the practices now that will prepare you for all of the difficulties your life will provide to you. <laughs> the world will provide so many difficulties along the way. And the Dharma practice is to prepare us. How can we skillfully respond when we're afraid? Not, I'm going to meditate so much that I don't experience that, that I completely, you know, there's all this talking about rewiring. And there's some truth to it. We do. We rewire our mind as, uh, you know, we develop mindfulness. We develop the biggest hope, as far as I can tell. Our biggest hope is to learn to not take it so personally. Learn to not be so identified with the afflictive emotions like fear and hatred. Fear and loathing. But expecting your mind to not get afraid, to expecting that uh, anger and, and resentment and hatred are not going to ever arise, it's unrealistic. It's part of being human. Now, the truth is, and I can testify <laughs> out of my own direct experience, that it really mellows out. The amount of fear I was experiencing when I started meditating 32 years ago, I mean, some of it was circumstantial because I was looking at some felonies and I was locked up and I was kicking drugs and alcohol. And I mean, I was fucking terrified. But I was terrified all of the time back then. Mostly because of my actions <laughs> and like, am I going to get caught and am I going to get beat up and am I going to get killed and am I going to overdose and, you know, like I lived in fear. So I'm not the best example because most of you are much healthier than I was. <laughs> Although I know a lot of the Sangha can relate. And I lived in hatred. 
like so often just, you know, what I saw as justified hatred of the system of the system of oppression and inequality and ignorance and hypocrisy of our country. And I was pissed and I was afraid and I was strung out and I started meditating. And slowly over the months and years, and you know, some of it was the effect of mindfulness, the effects of loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness and all of these practices. For sure, some of that was the internal and some of it was the renunciation and you heard in the meditation instruction, may I do what needs to be done? And some of it is the mind training and some of it is, oh, if I stop lying and stealing and <laughs> breaking, you know, the law, I, was not, I didn't stop breaking all of the laws, but the kind of gross uh, criminal behavior I used to do. Um, I said something to my children the other day about breaking the law. And they said, we're breaking the law right now. We're not wearing our seatbelts. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but um, you're still not getting in the back of the truck. <laughs> but, my, you know, so it decreases fear. I don't live like, you know, like when you live with a, a, some level of integrity and some level of honesty and of non, but the five precepts, like what a beautiful practice to not kill any living beings, to not steal, not take anything that is not offered to us, to not, uh, or earned, to not, um, not lie, to be careful, to be honest, to be uh, in integrity with our speech, to abstain from sexual misconduct, to abstain from uh, drugs and alcohol, like just getting sober and staying sober, you know, and of course this teaching from the Buddha is not just for us junkies. <laughs> this teaching is for everyone. The Buddha says, hey, if you want to get free, don't cloud your mind with intoxicants. That's a dead end and it makes it impossible to be mindful. You know, as soon as you take a drink or a hit or a you know, social injection, whatever. <laughs> it makes it impossible to be fully present. And then you, you can't, you know, this, um, where I started this perspective that it's not what happens, it's how we respond, that we have the ability to learn to respond to what's happening. As soon as you get high, you actually don't have the ability to choose your response anymore. Now you have that chemical intoxicant, weed, booze, crack, heroin, <laughs> whatever it is, and you know, micro dosing. <laughs> You're no longer able to fully choose, even if it feels way better because you're in that cloud. You're still not able to fully respond mindfully to what's happening intentionally. So learning to not take it all so personally, and it decreases, it decreases 
my, like I said, I used to live in constant fear. And now I, I still experience, I'm, I'm a little nervous about what's going to happen tomorrow. And, you know, I, have, I don't watch that much news, but every time I turn on the news, I'm like, ooh, fucking whatever it is, it's bad. Whatever's going to happen, it's bad. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it's nothing, but, you know, I feel a little bit like this is the, uh, this decades, uh, you know, with the coronavirus, with the election, with the, it's a little bit like, do you remember Y2K? Oh, yeah. uh -huh. Where they were like, it's everything's fucking going down. Yes, yeah, 20 years ago. And it was like, like it's over. It's going to, it's going to like, society's going to collapse tomorrow. <laughs> I feel a little bit like that's sort of what the energy is of like, no matter who wins, there's going to be riots in the streets. The militias are coming. Could be true. I don't. I don't know. I, maybe. So fear and loathing probably aren't. Uh, I still experience a lot of fear. The Buddha talked about Mara, this aspect of the mind that shows up as fear and loathing and self-centeredness and doubting. And he said, even after awakening, it's still here, but I've learned to meet it with equanimity. I've learned to meet it with knowing that it is not self, it's not who I am. It's just a function of this human mind. The mind gets way better <laughs> to live with, I promise you. And you know this, so many of you know this. You've been practicing for a while and you've seen, it's like there's a change in the whole internal environment. It gets so much more pleasant internally. And our ability uh, to experience forgiveness and compassion and like those skills, those habits, those becomes more and more accessible to us over the years of practice. More and more natural. There's a teaching that I like so much where the Buddha says, um, he says we do that this whole Dharma practice is a internal purification. You could call it inner bathing and we scrub away the impurities of greed and hatred and delusion. And he gives a list of 17 defilements. It's called the simile of the cloth. And he says, and when we do that, we do this internal, he said, and then we abandon uh, the causes of suffering. And what remains is a loving heart and a compassionate heart and a appreciative heart and an equanimous heart that everything that was covering it, that was causing us suffering was all of these confusions that the mind creates. Now he says we abandon it. It's one of those teachings where it sounds a little perfect. The way I translate it, so it makes sense to me, is that we abandon believing 
the afflictive emotions and identifying and clinging. No, we don't advance. I just, I'm not buying that human beings can completely get rid of fear. Human beings can completely get rid of desire or, you know, make their mind never judge or never doubt. Again, I just don't buy it. It doesn't make sense psychologically, uh, neurologically, biologically. It doesn't quite add up that that's what enlightenment is. But this other perspective that says, no, no, that shit continues, but you see it clearly and you don't get hooked into it and you don't cling to it as self and therefore you're at ease. Even when the mind is afraid, even when the mind is judging, even when the mind is craving whatever it's doing. And as the Buddha said, I see you Mara put a label on that aspect of his mind. And just every time an afflictive, difficult thought arose, he just said, I see you, I'm paying, I'm mindful. You can't get me, motherfucker, paying attention. So I hope that um, normalizing, it helps you some, and I hope it gives you some hope that if you keep practicing, it'll get uh, easier and easier to deal with. Um, and some of the tools that we have, that the Dharma offers us um, are kind of, to balance the uh, unavoidable, difficult aspects of our mind to create all of these good habits. By saying, I forgive you, even if you don't mean it yet. Just start saying it over and over to your own mind. Rather than, I hate my mind. I forgive my mind for being confused and for offering ignorant responses to the difficult experiences in life. I forgive you. And encouraging uh, the mind through loving kindness and through compassion and appreciation and, and uh, equanimity. Equanimity, I feel like, is such a a warden, I'm par par partially it's on my mind because Ward and I were talking about it earlier around um, so key to, uh, I don't know, maybe, I think it's so key to everything, but I like to really apply it some to the situation in this country and uh, the election tomorrow and that, the, Balancing all of our love and all of our compassion and appreciation with the understanding that we cannot control anybody else. No matter how much we love them. No matter how much compassion we have, much, how much forgiveness, how much passion we have for justice, for the right thing, for equality, for wisdom for no matter how much love and, and wisdom we have, we can't 
make anybody else have love and wisdom and compassion. The phrase, the traditional phrase is repeating over and over, training your mind to see all beings are heirs to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their own actions, their own karma, not my wishes for them. All beings have their own karma. I don't know how that lands for you, but I have a very mixed internal uh, response to it. One is I feel like, of a relief because I'm a bit of a um, caretaker and I want to take care of people and I want to fix things and uh, there's a big part of me that that's like suffers from the bodhisattva delusion <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna save all sentient beings which is so delusional. I mean, it's beautiful, right? Buddhism says, hey, dedicate your life to <laughs> service. Recovery says, dedicate your life to service. But it, get, it can get so out of balance if we don't have equanimity, if we don't understand that, yep, dedicate your life to developing wisdom and compassion and helping each other, but understand your limitations. You can't save all living beings. You can't make anybody get sober. You can't make anybody be happy. Happiness comes from internal non-attachment, internal compassion, internal not taking it all personal. And no matter how much we care about each other, you can't make anybody not take their own minds personal <laughs> or the external things personal. You can't make it. You can teach people how to do it if they're interested. Well, it's obviously what I've dedicated my life to. I want to teach people how to do it, but I can't make anybody do it. We can model it. We can explain it. We can support each other. We can try to inspire and encourage. We have influence. but we don't have control. Living in this, with this understanding that has to have a foundation of uh, accepting each other um, just as we are accepting this world just as it is. But acceptance is not complacency, it's not inaction, it's not... Um, acceptance, is, acceptance from this perspective is just seeing clearly that, that phrase that we use all of the time, that right now it's like this accepting it's it is like this we don't like it 
it's scary, it's tenuous, it's not much security, it's not very comfortable, it's not, but it is like this. From that place of accepting, of seeing clearly, then we take action. It's like this and it's calling for truckloads of forgiveness and compassion. It's calling for political action and legal action and environmental action. And it's called, right? Because sometimes we say acceptance as though like, well, well, just accept it and don't do shit. Accept it to see it clearly. Don't deny it. Don't ignore it. It being your own mind, your friends, your family, your culture, your planet, our reality, this world from the inside out. It's like this. This Ajahn Amaro book that we've been studying, many, many of you have been studying with me. It's a place right in the beginning where he says, anytime your mind uh, sort of rejects what's happening by that simple, it's wrong. It shouldn't be like this. And he says, you're, you know, and anytime your mind is doing that, you're out of harmony with the Dhamma and the Dharma. And I was like, yeah, my mind does that all the time. Shouldn't be like this. This world shouldn't be like this. This, my, my, my mind's been like that since I was very young. It's what drew me to addiction and punk rock and eventually to the Dharma. Shouldn't be like this. I want to change it. I want to work for a positive change. But it is like this. And what can we do about it? We can practice renunciation in our own lives. We can develop compassion. We can develop forgiveness. We can be of service. We can be engaged from the inside out. And we can uh, accept that this world has always been a world of confusion and ignorance. And it may, seems to be getting a bit, I, I think it's dangerous to say this, it, in some ways it's getting better. than it used to be. In some ways it feels like it's getting worse. It's so tense, but in some progress for many people, many groups of people, many little less oppression in, in many ways, a little less ignorance. Those are my thoughts about fear and loathing and my encouragements towards 
love and tolerance. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? I see a bunch of action happening in the chat. What are your questions here in the room? Comments, clarifications. Somebody has nominated me for president, I'll have you know. <laughs> what a mess that would be. Okay, here's a question. Very relative question, but isn't judgment about whether an emotion, action, or thought is negative or positive its own sort of construct that gives certain things a taboo, taboo status that striving to avoid then gives it the power over us, privileging one thing over the other? whether uh, judgment about whether an emotion or action or thought is negative or positive is its own sort of construct. Um, I don't, I don't know the, the answer might be yes, that it is a construct. Um, that privileges certain actions over other actions. And um, so I'm open to that. I'm open to the answer being yes, but I will say that what Buddhism teaches is that we're, there's no judgment and that kind of uh, karma, what the question is about is karma is not a construct. It's not something that we've made up. It's a law of nature. And it's not that we are judging negative and positive, but that there is inherent, uh, you know, that this is not a, a, a man-made human kind of judgment, that this, there's inherent qualities in actions that, cause, that intentionally cause harm to others. There's a negative karmic consequence in that. And this is not a judgment, it is, uh, a law of nature. Uh, likewise, in actions that are intentionally uh, helpful and loving and kind and compassionate and generous, there is an inherent uh, good result from those. Uh, um, so I'm open to all of Buddhism being a construct, <laughs> but for this, uh, the sake of this conversation and what the Buddha taught and what we're teaching and practicing in Buddhism, that we're not deciding what is positive and negative, that there is inherent uh, meaning behind harmful acts and non-harmful acts. That um, this isn't, uh, there's no judging God, there's no you know guru deciding whether you're good or bad. It's not your mind making up judgments. It's just like um, karma is just from a Buddhist perspective, 
is like gravity. Like you don't have to believe in it, <laughs> but gravity is what keeps us, uh, you know, walking around on the planet. Uh, and so is karma. <laughs> it's what keeps, you know, our suffering either going and increasing or our suffering uh, lessening and decreasing. So um, from, of course, you know, I don't mean to be critical, but so from a Buddhist perspective, it's not a construct at all. It's a fact. <laughs> and I don't love that kind of religious answer, but that's the answer. Uh, another question, open, if you guys have questions, just raise your hand and let me know. If you have a question here that you'd like to speak, you can raise your hand in the um, participants window at the bottom. There's a little thing that lets you uh, raise your hand. Another question here in the chat, it says, I'm so happy to hear you say, agree that we don't need to abandon our emotions. I've been thinking this over since we last talked about extinguishing anger. I spent a bunch of time wondering if there's a difference between anger and intolerance. Can one have intolerance without anger and with compassion or is intolerance a form of attachment and aversion? Well, I mean, I could answer that from my own experience as I reflect on it. But I invite you, uh, Katrina, and everybody else to reflect for a moment on how does it feel in your heart, mind, body when you're angry? How does it feel when you're intolerant? There's a, there's a subtle difference. Could be a subtle difference. And they're also like intolerance could be like, you could be intolerant with compassion, I think. Is that the part of the question? What is intolerance? Can one have intolerance without anger and with compassion? I think the answer is yes, it's possible. Like, um, like a parent who's not gonna, you know, out of compassion and love is not gonna tolerate certain behavior. There's gonna be consequences. And so you could say, well, that's, that's a form of intolerance. And so from that perspective, like, yes. And in relationships, like there uh, should be healthy boundaries and, and, you know, some things are just not okay in, in uh, relationships and they're intolerable and so you know there's a, a, a consequence which is like I'm not gonna um, put up with that shit um, so and it can come from a place of love and actually it, it, sometimes the most loving and l most compassionate thing to do is to uh, out of intolerance for bad behavior to have a really good boundary and it can come from compassion. Doesn't You don't have to be angry and have hate in order to have good boundaries. 
you just have to say, you know, some behaviors are tolerable uh, and some behaviors are not tolerable. And so I'm going to have good boundaries. Now, intolerance doesn't mean you can change that, right? Like, so taking that whole perspective, Katrina, and saying like, yes, you could have intolerance and compassion, but remember that intolerance doesn't mean that you can make someone else change. Remember the equanimity that we're talking about, that it doesn't, you know, you cannot tolerate it, but it doesn't mean that they're going to change. And so our intolerance probably means, you know, I'm going to um, not participate in this uh, environment if, I, if, if you have the choice. It's tricky with family. Like what's it mean to, you know, the holidays are here, they're coming. Uh, I, I know that the government and, you know, the kind of general uh, uh, suggestion is like, don't go to big like Thanksgiving gatherings, you know, like we don't need a bunch of uh, COVID spreading uh, things, uh, gatherings happening. It's already, numbers seem to be increasing already. But, you know, with the sort of traditional idea of the holidays and maybe you see family and extended family and um, what's it mean to be intolerant of your, and, and, and with the election tomorrow, what's it mean to be intolerant of people's political views that you, people that you love, maybe mom and dad have some different ideas than you do, or your siblings have some different ideas than you do about what's right. And so what's it mean to be tolerant versus intolerant. And I think that maybe um, part of it is like tolerating and, and loving and uh, accepting each other, even if we think they're totally ignorant, <laughs> you know, this sort of internal, like, I think you're totally confused and I still love you. And then the intolerance is like, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't wanna communicate, but let's not talk about politics or religion, <laughs> let's not talk about that because it's just not going to go well. Uh, out of compassion for both of us, I'm going to be intolerant of this conversation. <laughs> so I think that the answer could be yes. That we could have good boundaries around that stuff. Okay, one more. Anything in the room? All right, one more from the online community. It's really, really hard for me to sit in fear, in a fear. I've been trying to practice forgiveness for being so scared and equanimity, but the intensity of this one recurring fear gets so intense that I can't really sit in it yet. Do you have any suggestion for how to sit in a fear that feels so unsafe? I remember once you mentioned how walking meditation can be helpful in those situations. Wanted to hear more about that or other routes. Very, very thankful for your talk and this Sangha as always. Um, it sounds like you're already trying to do this, Lee, but my 
what comes to mind uh, is there's a whole practice, like some of what we're doing in, in Buddhism is like, in psychology, there's a uh, kind of perspective that in order to get through a fear, we have to expose ourselves to it over and over. And to, through a lot of our neurotic stuff, like you can't get there except for by turning towards it. And a lot of what we're doing in meditation is we're turning towards it. And so there's an encouragement and my teacher Ajahn Amaro talks about, and it's part of what I do in my practice, is that sometimes, not when you're already super afraid, but like when you're feeling pretty safe and, you know, like stabilized, intentionally trigger fear. Like in your meditation, let, you know, turn towards it and, uh, you know, just say a couple words in your mind that are going to freak you out a little bit. And maybe it's like, I'm going to die or whatever, like, and that's just like, oh, shit, I'm going to die. And then you feel it in your body and you shift from the story of bringing up the fear and come back to uh, an embodied experience of like, okay, where's the fear in my body? There's these thoughts and stories in my mind, but what's happening in my belly? What's happening in my armpits? What's happening in my jaw? And source it, first foundation, mindfulness of the body. Where's the emotion live physically? Can I soften around it? Can I breathe into it? And by continuing to do this sort of exposure therapy towards our difficult emotions like big fears, and I hear you saying it's get, it can get so intense that I can't really sit in it yet. Mostly I tend towards trust that, do the walking, you know, maybe you'll do the same practice with walking meditation. Walking meditation can have a um, really wonderful effect, just the bilateral attention of left and right does something similar to EMDR, I believe, where we're do, doing bilateral attention. EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and it's a trauma resolution tool. And so walking meditate, and, and the core of that is that if you bring your attention back and forth, it moves our really stuck trauma triggers from the amygdala fight or flight up into the neocortex where it just lives as a painful memory rather than something that we re-experience as uh, danger or over you know, flooding. So I think that walking meditation is quite um, skillful. And I don't know how long you've been practicing. So I, I tend towards gentleness, like turn towards it, pull back, turn towards it, pull back. Um, and then at some point, the remember that that um, part of you that is saying, I can't do it, is the mind that part of that, you're like, I, I, yes, be gentle, and I'm all for trauma-informed, gentle awakening process. And I also, there's a part of me that also feels like, once you've been practicing for a while, at some point, you've got to just sit in the fire of your own fear. You don't need to do that too soon. You don't have to do that right in the beginning. But I remember Cornfield uh, talking about a student that had this similar question and he was like well be gentle but keep going and on a long retreat and then at some point that student came back and and, and Jack said well what did you do uh, 
uh, and he said, I just sat through it. He said, I just decided I was going to be the first meditator to die of fear because my mind was like, it's going to kill me. It's going to kill me. You can't handle it. And he's like, I just sat there and I sat there and I sat there. And it arose and it sustained and it burned and it was, and it passed and it took the power out of it because I didn't let it push me off of the meditation cushion. I sat through it. So at some point, we have to get to that level of commitment where we're like, I'm gonna, I can sit through anything, no matter how painful it is, because ultimately it's just thoughts and feelings and sensations and they can't actually kill us. Please. I'm gonna have like a piggyback to this question because yeah. when you bring up EMDR, and I'm actually supposed to be going through this, but I was told that I can't do it over Tylenol because it's like too dangerous, like I need like a buddy. Is that like, if I were to start a walking meditation, let's say, and like, like someone like me, um, is there a way to like, I don't really know, and I feel hesitant to encourage you to, um, you know, do it on your own. There is something about the therapist-client relationship, and it's part of what we're doing in Sangha, where we have each other. That having been said, like even the worst uh, PTSD, uh, you experience it sometimes yeah. already. Mm -hmm. And what's the longest that lasts for you? Yeah. yeah. So the worst, you know, so you know from your past experience that there's certain things that could uh, last for a couple hours yeah. and they're pretty brutal. Yeah. But the longest they last is a couple hours and they pass. Yeah. And I mean, in the history of me personally like I'll go out and do something self-destructive because of it or I'll go drink or I'll take a high or whatever and then right. just try to stop it or get out of it or whatever but it's like right. me trying to find ways to stop it through those kinds of things. Yes. Aren't we all are but meditation but then if you're sitting with your pain that's like not you know how do you get out I guess I don't know. You have to also have that resolve of like okay I'm going to not to go do some self-destructive thing to try to temporarily avoid this, but the willingness to, I might be really uncomfortable for a couple hours. Yeah. On, on, in this book that we're looking at, Amaro said, and he probably doesn't have the kind of trauma that we're talking about, but he said, at the longest, it tends to last about 45 minutes if you, you know, when you intentionally bring it up. And I think he, you know, it might be different when we're intentionally bringing it up in meditation or in therapy than when something happens in our, you know, where we're kind of encouraging it is different than when it just gets triggered in, in life. So you might find that it's not quite as intense. Happy to talk to you more about it. It's all the time we have for tonight. Um, I want to say vote, but I think it's too late at this point. I hope you voted. <laughs> you can still vote tomorrow, I guess. If you go, oh, you can go stand in line. That's right. You can vote in person if you haven't voted. Go stand in line. Do a walking meditation, standing meditation. Well, they won't be long. We'll see. 
Well, I, I think mine in like 10 minutes I was in. Today? No. Yeah. It's the deadline. Um, this class is done by donation. Uh, we ask for a $15 donation for people who come online uh, or in person. If you can afford $15, thank you. It helps me pay the rent and supports the organization. Um, if you don't have $15 to donate, know that you're welcome to be here anyways, uh, and always welcome to be here and uh, give what you see fit, whatever is affordable for your budget. Um, some people become monthly supporters. If you can, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream where you each month uh, auto, auto debit, auto deposit. Uh, I think there's three levels, 25, 50 or $100 a month to support the center. Uh, please consider doing that if you can. Welcome to everybody that was new. See you next week. Um, and we'll have more to discuss. Many goodness that comes from the Dharma that we've practiced and discussed together. We shared outward in all directions with all living beings everywhere. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.